Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Earl Bostick from about 1951 and Flamingo. And that's because it's one of the key influences of the Rolling Stones' Charlie Watts. We have on the Strange Brew Paul Sexton, the writer of the authorised biography of Charlie Watts called Charlie's Good Tonight. And Paul will be talking about his experience writing that fantastic book and Charlie Watts in general. So let's hear my chat with Paul. Hi, Jason. Hi, Paul. Charlie's good tonight. Mm. As a journalist, you've got quite a long association with the Rolling Stones anyway, so I assume it was a... Whose idea was it to chronicle Charlie's life? Because this, I think this was before Charlie passed away, wasn't it, anyway? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the idea goes back a couple of years to uh, the point where, if I can pinpoint it, it's a, the summer of 2020 because Stones had just released the latest of those deluxe editions of uh, one of the uh, classic albums, which was um, Goat's Head Soup. And I interviewed them all again, actually not Charlie on that occasion, but um, certainly Mick and Keith, for a feature for the Sunday Times um, that ran in uh, the, the cover, actually, of the culture section. Uh, you know, as occasionally happens, not very often, but, uh, you know, you never know who's out there reading. And somebody from HarperCollins, one of the publishers there, got in touch with me uh, with a view specifically to, to doing something with Charlie. And at that time, the idea was an autobiography. And I kind of put myself in the in the frame for that. And I think they knew that I'd been interviewing them for a long time. And I, you know, I sort of explained a little bit about, about how the Stones machine works and don't hold your breath and everything takes months longer than you think it's going to. So we kind of ran with that idea for a while. And I know that it did reach Charlie. And he didn't dismiss it out of hand, which I thought he might, actually. Mm. <laughs> but uh, various things delayed it. COVID came along, of course, and very much got in the way. And um, at a certain point, we decided that the the more likely idea was going to be a, a biography. And then I guess he got poorly and sadly passed away. And But, uh, you know, what, what had started out as something that took quite a long time at various stages of it became... Uh, something that was definite and then approved by Charlie's lovely family. And then suddenly the clock was ticking because, you know, we we knew we wanted to, to, to get the book out by around the time of the first anniversary of his death. Um, so as it came out in September, just after the, the, the anniversary. But um, that's the sort of broad strokes. And yeah, as you say, before that, 30 years worth of interviews with, with all of them. And out of all the stones, in terms of a, certainly an off-rise biography, Charlie's life is potentially the most interesting mm. due to the nature of Charlie. And it does come across in, in this fantastic biography of him that even though he was a rock star, in, in quotation marks, in a way, he was also quite a, a private individual and humble in a way. Very humble, extremely private, and uh, just the absolute antithesis of everything in the manual, really. And to continue to be able to live that life he, for all of his fame and and fortune to retain that privacy, I think, is an enormous achievement in itself. But it goes to the, just his character, you know, as a, as a human being. He simply was not swayed by the usual things that turn people's heads in this business. He certainly was not interested in fame. He enjoyed his fortune, but that's a completely separate thing, I think. Therefore, became this rather mysterious character that no one really knew that much about. So it was a wonderful opportunity from that point of view because. You know, you start the project with an enormous amount of goodwill because nearly everybody knows him or yeah. knows his name or has a, some vague idea about him. But very few people know very much about him. So there's an awful lot of, of um, potential there uh, to explore his life, both inside and outside the science. And that was kind of important to me from early on was that it was it was not going to be solely his his uh, career with the band. 
but you know a chance to sort of dig more deeply into his private life and i kind of said at the very beginning to the publishers what the world doesn't need is yet another rolling stones uh history because there are as we know there are thousands of them so even though it's mostly chronological i hope that it uh, you know tells their story through his eyes or as it applied to him at certain stages and what that means is there's certain things that you know that he didn't necessarily go into great detail about or that uh, or had strong feelings about that we that we don't dwell on as much as perhaps some stones books do you know and dare i say there's a, maybe a bit more focus on the later years you know which by which time a lot of critics have kind of checked out you know they're not really that interested in anything they've done for the last 20 25 years really so again there's potential there which was fun to explore yeah maybe it's worth going chronologically through some of those highlights charlie's sister linda has given her first ever mm-hmm. interview and you do get that picture of that that early post-war era, I think Charlie and his family were from the Wembley area. Mm. And, you know, you yep. you go through that period. Really interesting insights that at the very start, Charlie was playing banjo, for example, that I never knew yes. about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and, and bodged together his first drum kit from that banjo before his parents put him out of his misery and bought him a second-hand drum kit for his Christmas present. Yeah, I think that came through to me as well, you know, just and there's some things in there that I hadn't really talked to him about or anybody else before this point about growing up in as a, as a war baby, you know, although he didn't really rem- remember very much about the war. But then the family get relocated to one of those prefabs, you know, and that's where he meets his to be lifelong friend, Dave Green, fellow jazz enthusiast. But Linda in particular, because she's three years younger than Charlie. So she she comes along soon afterwards and, and paints, a, a I think, quite a vivid picture of what life was like. In, in those very modest circumstances, but a very happy time, you know, they, they, she speaks about it very affectionately. And it's amazing, really, to think that Charlie was still there. You know, he was in the early days of the Stones. He, for a brief period, he did move out and live during the weekdays at the famously ghastly Edith Grove flat with Mick and Keith and Brian. But he was still going home at weekends to get his washing done. <laughs> <laughs> so um then you know he doesn't after that he, he finally moves out to to move into his first flat with his soon-to-be wife Shirley so he never lived on his own and uh only really knew those very modest kind of circumstances and you know in the very very early days the, the band were coming around for rehearsals in the famous in Stu's famous van <laughs> and uh and they'd be making a racket for a while and the, Charlie's parents would be surprisingly um tolerant of it and then the following morning, they'd still be there eating bacon sandwiches. <laughs> and those early influences and the records that, that that you mentioned as well, like Earl Bostick and Flamingos, mm-hmm. you know, from an early age, Charlie's love of jazz came out. And that was a huge influence in, in terms of his drumming style. It really was. And it just so happened that he had a friend to share that with. I think he would have pursued that path anyway, because Charlie was in, in some ways he was a loner. And I think I think he was always quite happy in his own in his own company. So once he discovered that passion for jazz, he was going to go down that road anyway. But it, it just was pure serendipity that he found himself living next door to a guy almost the same age. And Dave's, Dave Green is nine months his junior, who shared all of those same passions. So they would be in each other's bedrooms playing these records, as you say, Earl Bostick and Charlie Parker, of course, and uh, Jerry Mulligan, Walking Shoes. He always used to talk about that. And then a little bit later, they're beginning to go into London into the West End for uh, for gigs and so on. So, yeah, that was hardwired, I think, from quite early on. And it goes through the period where rock and roll is beginning to happen. You know, he he developed a, an admiration for some early rock and roll, but not all of it. And it was certainly very much secondary to his love of jazz. 
pretty much everything in Charlie's life was secondary to his love of chess. There's some great insights that, that I wasn't aware of. The time we went to Denmark, mm. his association with Dudley Moore. Yeah. And then some things that we are aware of, but maybe don't think of as much like um, his unique drumming style on classic Stones tracks were from mm. Street Fighting Man to Honky Tonk Woman. And no mm. other drummer could have brought that into the Stones and yeah. lifted the group. Without a doubt. And you can go back even further than that. I don't think there's any doubt. And I'm, I don't speak as a musician, certainly not as a drummer. But um, his style is what attracted the band to him. It was that way around, as, as we know. They headhunted him. Brian Jones, wasn't it? Well, I think it was. Uh, they all kind of claimed a bit of credit for it in, in, in a way. I mean, Keith, Keith the way tell, uh, he tells the story now, and as he told to me for the recent conversation, and I know he uh, he's said this other in other places as well, is that... Um, he and Mick were at the Ealing Club, you know, because they'd heard that there was this place that was playing that did R&B, amazing. You know, they had to had to be there for that. And uh, Charlie was playing there and they they heard him in this absolutely packed room, but couldn't see the drummer. All Keith could see through someone's, you know, little gap in someone's from behind kind of thing was uh, was his left hand. You know, said, uh, this is fantastic. If we can find out what's attached to the left hand, then uh, we can conquer the world. And they did and they did. But yes, I think they they certainly heard the swing. That's the key thing, isn't it? I think it's that thing of playing across the beat uh, rather than on it. And um, from talking to people like Chris Kimsey, you know, who's a later producer, engineer and the later producer, of course, he pointed out the crucial thing that, uh, you know, very unusually, Charlie didn't play the, never played the, the snare and the hi-hat at the same time, which is very unusual and created that very kind of clean sound of his. Mm. But the thing that amazes me and, you know, it was even how, however well you know, you know the tracks, obviously I was listening to them again in great detail while I was writing the book. And it is phenomenal, you know, what he's able to do from, uh, you know, very early days with extremely limited sonic capabilities on things like 19th Nervous Breakdown or Painted Black. It's a real panorama of, of, of sound just in the drums, never mind before you add all the other instrumentation, but never with any fuss, you know, never never a suggestion of, his, of a solo ever in anything he ever did, I don't think. Definitely, you know, the kind of less is more approach. Quite a lot of material and, and side projects and, and guest appearances that I weren't familiar with mm. until I read the book, like his work on Liam Russell's album, uh, yeah. uh, Roll Away the Stone as well. And yep. Not a showy drummer as well. So, you know, you've got some drummers with huge drum sets and everything. Yeah. And as you say, it was economical, in, certainly in terms of the drum sets he used, but the sound that he got out of that was yeah. unmistakably him. It was, and I think it goes to his character you know an extremely unshowy person and it's reflected in his drumming style and because of this natural and it really was a natural modesty that he had he was never really that sure of himself you know you you could never really pay charlie a compliment <laughs> and i often tried or i either myself or i'd be relaying something that uh usually it'd be keith because every i think just about every interview with keith he would always has always said how lucky he was how blessed he felt to play behind Charlie, you know, and you'd say that to him and he'd just go, really? When did you last talk to him? You know, that that kind of thing. So if you add all those things together, you have somebody who's naturally naturally modest, isn't anywhere near as sure of himself as most rock and roll stars are. And then I think if you add in that completely intrinsic natural ability that he had, he didn't need to have all the bells and whistles that, that the others had, much as he admired them and was great friends with Keith Moon and, and he knew yeah. Bonzo, John Bonham. And he and Ringo, of course, great friends and and extreme, you know, absolute contemporaries. But yeah, pretty much throughout the entire his entire career, I mean, a seven piece kit, pretty much. That was it. That's all he needed. 
impeccably smart yep. and again some details that he didn't drive but he absolutely loved cars yeah that's right <laughs> once he made some money he developed quite expensive tastes i suppose you'd say never afraid to spend money on himself but also extremely generous that's a separate conversation really but yeah he starts buying this what turns into a fleet really <laughs> of amazing cars without ever learning to drive because again you know like i was saying before about his i don't think there was ever a point where he needed needed to learn to drive you know he went from living at home to being in a flat with with shirley and then the fame and fortune arrives and there's always someone there to drive him around so he just liked to have those cars in his various properties and certainly in the later years in their big house in devon you know some people can't get their head around this at all but he would he really would literally just go and sit in them put one of his best suits on go and sit in them and kind of just enjoy the whole experience. You know, he aspired to a kind of quiet opulence, I suppose you could say, and style that there's a thread that runs through all of those collections, you know, and, and connects him to, to his love of jazz. Because as far as that went, it's not just a love of the of the music. You know, he loved absolutely everything about jazz, including the uh, the style. So if somebody on a one of those wonderful blue note covers or anything else was wearing a, a green shirt, he had to have a green shirt. Very swayed by that. And you might even argue that that's what led him astray, you know, in his personal life later on, because even that was part of the jazz experience, wasn't it? You know, people um, overindulging, shall we say? Yeah, and like almost every life, it isn't a straight path. You'll have ups and, and downs. And mm. the mid-80s was not yeah. the best time in his life. 
but the Charlie Watts orchestra that was yeah, and the sort of Ronnie Scott's link, which mm-hmm. lifted him into the sort of next phase of his life. It did, and that's a it, it's a complete, completely crucial staging post in a way because from a musical point of view, yes, it definitely gave him the encouragement to pursue you know his jazz inclinations all the more. I mean, it's very it seems strange now to think that his name was never on a record until. 1986, I guess it was, and then after that, of course, there's there's a whole succession of of lovely records in with various combinations and and uh, sizes of, of bands. But as he said, you know, the the thing about putting that big band together, Ben, I mean, there's an amazing gesture towards the Ronnie Ronnie's club because he loved it so much, you know, and played there so much and had been in the you know there as a member of the audience as well. But he it's that is right at the point where he's he's kind of off the rails temporarily. And he said that when he was putting that big band together, he was still indulging and in a pretty bad way. But it was that was the thing that gave him the courage to ask all those people to be in that band. So, you know, Stan Tracy and Jack Bruce and and then up and coming people like Courtney Pine and so on. So that's that's pretty amazing that he did that. It did so well, of course, that they then took it on the road and went to the States, by which time he was straight again, <laughs> pretty much. So he said it was kind of a it was a double-edged sword, you know, he much as he regretted it. And he didn't know, he could never understand why he suddenly in his mid-40s decided to, um, having been abstemious, apart from booze, you know, then uh, suddenly he went completely mad. And somebody else took over his life, really, for about two years. And then he saw what he was doing, came to his senses, and um, and kind of saved himself and his marriage and his life, I think. You can hear the joy from that first live recording. You've got yeah. very old standards like stomping at the Savoy in there, mm. but you could just feel the the love of the music just coming out of that recording. You can, and I I, I imagine I don't remember talking to him about this specifically, but I bet he wished he'd done it earlier. Mm. You know, because as with any band who had grown to such global proportions, I'm sure the Stones was a bit of a straitjacket at, at times, and certainly by the period we're talking about, you know, things were at their lowest ebb, weren't they? You know, Mick and Keith were were barely speaking. Uh, you know, they made the Dirty Work album, which I would defend up to a point, but it is most people's least favourite from Stone's album, I guess. And then Mick, meanwhile, is doing a solo record and decide not to, not to tour. But the other side of that story, and we cover it in the book, is that uh, much as Mick is always made out to be the bad guy in that situation, the fact is the band were not in a very good state at all, including Charlie, yeah. you know, so... I think that's another reason why they didn't uh, didn't go out. I suppose they came as close as you can to splitting up, but they didn't split up. And that's part of what allows us to look back on this 60 years now and think that it is in a funny way, it is still sort of continuous.
Charlie, not concerned about the trappings of the usual rock star life, mm. but the point about playing live and as well keeping his hand in, which is what the orchestra yeah. and other projects ultimately enabled him to do when the Stones were touring, yeah. was one of the key points as well. It was. I mean, you could argue that they didn't begin to make the serious money until the turn of the 90s, you know, with the onset of the well, the Steel Wheels tour is kind of the point where most people would say that, that, that that's where the big money comes in and the massive stadium shows and the two-year tours in some cases. But by the time we're still talking about in the 80s, he's probably done well enough to take things pretty easy if he wanted to, but he didn't want to. You know, he wanted to to try some different things. And it turned out, I don't think they knew this at the time, but of course it turned out that there was an extended period in which he could he could do that and, and uh, take that uh, big band on the road and go to the States and so on and have a lovely time. And then from that point on, of course, there are quite a lot of entries in his jazz catalogue, which for anyone that doesn't know them, you know, or even anyone that's a little bit wary of jazz, I would always say, give them a try. I heard a track from, um, actually with another, another interview that I was doing, uh, a track from that, uh, the album, the mini album that he made when his uh, uh, his book on Charlie Parker was reissued, the book Ode to a High Flying Bird, which he did at art college. Beautiful little line drawings and and cleverly written text as well. And when that was reissued, they did, he and the uh, quintet, I guess, including Dave Green, made a little mini album to go with it called From One Charlie, dot, dot, dot. And that's a lovely record. You know, it's mainly covers of Parker stuff, but a couple of originals on there. And it's it's just beautifully, as tasteful as you would hope. And through some of those projects, uh, Bernard Fowler yeah. comes into it as well. And it's a lovely partnership too. That's right. Yes. And at one point, I'd forgotten this, but I found the quote where Charlie said to me that, uh, and I'm sure he would never have actually quite got around to doing it, but he's, he loved Bernard's voice and style so much. He, you know, almost in- indicated to me that he might have thought about managing him at one point, you know, because... He just thought he epitomized or was was able to vocalize that, you know, the, the, those tracks so beautifully. And yet also to be a great member of a you know, live member of of uh, a rock and roll band, you know. So um, that's the thing. The cream always rises to the top and they just had access to such great players and, and singers all the way through.
and that rhythm section as it evolved from when Bill Wyman left and then Daryl Jones, mm. Charlie locked into Daryl very successfully for that next phase of the Stones. Yeah, he did. And um, those rehearsals or um, interviews, whatever you want to call them, were lengthy because <laughs> they were very wise, actually. They realised that it was not just a question of getting somebody who was right at the top in terms of um, their musicianship, but it had to be somebody that was going to fit in. Yeah. And boy, did they ever make the right decision. You know, 30, nearly 30 years later, he's still there, of course. And um, yeah, you're right. Charlie and Daryl had a, had a great working relationship, as you would absolutely have to. You know, he probably would have felt that that absence of Bill more keenly than anyone. I mean, they were very, very close friends, you know, from the very beginning. They were the two working class members of the Stones, really. They were the two quiet ones. They were the two OCD ones, as Bill said to me <laughs> recently. And um, just kindred spirits in, in a certain way. I mean, certainly not in terms of their lifestyle, but, um, uh, you know, and that had been there for nearly 30 years. So uh, when when Bill finally managed to persuade them that he was serious and that he really was leaving, and that conversation went on for about three, three or four years before he finally left. And even then, apparently, he was uh, they were trying to talk him back for a while. But um, yeah, that's uh, that that certainly produced a, a, a potential problem in in the same way that Mick Taylor's departure had. They've made good decisions, haven't they? When you think about it, the, when they've needed to to draft someone, they've they've done pretty well actually. <laughs> that OCD point actually comes out at times because I think like like Bill, um, Charlie used to keep tickets or memories of things that, from each show, and and also used to do little drawings in the hotel room of where he yeah. stayed. That's right. That, yeah, that that was that was his main habit, I suppose, and it became an obsession to the point where he had to do it, sketching every bed of every hotel room that he stayed in. From I think he started in 1967. They do exist still. They're still with us, and I think they will. You know, one day be one day they will be uh, seen. So, in the last decade of Charlie's life, one of the my favourite recordings of him was the, um, some of the Ben Waters album material, the, the tribute mm. to Ian Stewart. Like watching the river flow, and that's got a, basically like the, the stones yeah. with, with Jules Holland, but not also Bill Wyman. Yes, a great way of also paying tribute to Ian Stewart, who's kind of a not forgotten, but mm. needed showcasing in relation to yeah. one of the key figures of the Stones. Very much, and it's an underrated album, isn't it? I think you know, and and that as I, I mentioned it in the book, that performance, that version of watching the river flow is great. You know, and that's Bill Black back playing with them uh, again for the first time in a very long time. And that, of course, being sort of uh, a project that was that Ben Waters, who knew Charlie and and various members of the band, he it was pretty much his uh, his instigation, you know, and uh, uh, it was very important. Stu was again an unusual personality because he was basically sort of fired, yeah. really, from being a member of the band. We actually do have a photo, one of the very few, I think, in the book of them as a six piece with him in the lineup before Andrew Lou Oldham, God love him, and I do love him made the decision that he was probably a little bit too ugly. Although that's a qualitative thing, isn't it, in a band like the Stones? <laughs> and then he goes, you know, he is, has has the kind of magnanimity uh, and generosity of spirit to become their, their road, well, technically road manager, but so much more than that as well, of course. They absolutely loved him, Stu, and they were, you know, completely heartbroken when he died. So, yeah, I think they jumped at that, the chance to do a, a little tribute to him. You know, we covered Mick and Keith, but you mentioned Andrew Luke Oldham there. And he, mm. he's also got a, a forward or an introduction in the yeah. book as well, kind of sharing his his reflections on Charlie as well. That's right. Yes, Andrew is somebody that I I got to meet and and know a little bit quite some time ago. I'd say probably 15 years ago. 
uh, when we met one time at a, at a South by Southwest um, convention in, in in the States. But I hadn't been in touch with him for a while, um, except for just very occasional likes of tweets and things like that. So I got back in touch with him and, and uh, he it was kind of like flip flopping for a while. And, and uh, the deadline was approaching uh, on the book. And uh, I said to him because he'd sort of said yes and then no to an interview. I think the the reason he changed his mind was that I told him I had the family and so on. And he said, well, mm. you've got people who knew him far better than I did. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, you you basically pretty much discovered this band or were there in the very early days. Anyway, by that time, some time, time had elapsed and uh, there wasn't the, the sensible way to approach it was to ask him if he would do some kind of a forward. Um, and I, I love I love what he wrote. You know, he, he includes part of his own stoned autobiography in there and, and did a kind of a wraparound of it. Um, incorporating his first meeting with uh, with the band, <laughs> and uh, again, you know, that you could just the love comes oozing out. I think you know that just that, that they all they all had for him. And Charlie's passing, you've got that sort of reference from Mick Jagger. Charlie had his ill health, then mm. overcome that, and they were looking forward to the tour. And then yeah. it was clear that Charlie wouldn't make the tour, but mm. just so sad. And one of those landmarks in music history, really, in, in Charlie yeah. passing away. I think um, some people have been struck by by Mick's comments in particular because he hasn't always sort of bared his soul in, in public. I think that's fair to say, and he, he's he felt like he really did about Charlie and, and went into some detail about the you know those those final weeks and, and months where again you know th- these are two people who who loved each other to death and would go to the cricket together and hang out and so on and musically too very very well very much connected you know and would go to clubs together and. Mick would play Charlie new new records that he got. Maybe just to wrap up mm. the legacy of Charlie Watson and what he brought to rock music, um, a different style of drumming and yeah. a unique style and also a unique personality, a unique person. Very much. I think it's it's got as much to do with his character as his playing. You know, I don't he certainly didn't think he was the greatest rock drummer ever, and and I'm sure that there are lots of other contenders for that for that title, but musically. The combination of influences that he brought to rock and roll, I would say, were unique. And then, you know, almost as importantly, was his attitude to it all and his the way that he proved that not all rock stars are created equal. And you don't have to, you know, read from the manual to um, to have an amazing career in in the business and, and to end up, as I've seen, as we've all seen from just the outpouring of love towards him, you know, from on that that terrible day when we heard it. He passed away. Um, I think that's a level of affection. It went on and on, didn't it, for weeks and months as well. Mm. That's a rare thing. And uh, so it's as much about his personality as about his incredible musical contribution. It really does show. And just to say to everyone listening, a brilliant read and a unique insight into one of the great drummers. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. It's uh, It's been brilliant to speak to you. Thanks, Jason. Cheers, Paul. Bye-bye.
know, I guess in a way, which way the wind blows. As long as it does, I just sit here watch the river flow. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. 
Thank you.